draws you in. I was going to say lures, but it draws you in. I think there is an element of it, of, of you being lured, any one of us being lured into it by, by some entities, by some elements of this. Um, certainly that's from the realm of why we have to be careful. Um, all of us, anyone who is looking into high strangeness, you have to be careful because as Crowley says, there's some of them, they bite and um, they're hungry and uh, you put yourself in their food trap and they'll eat you. of weeks after the first season of Pennyroll was released, signs began to appear around Somerset. The first sign appeared outside of Jarfly Brewing, where our studio is located on the second floor. A very normal-looking woman walked up the street in broad daylight, pre-prepared pieces of the sign under her arm, and once in front of Jarfly, she began to tape the sections together in the window. It should be noted that directly across the street from Jarfly and our studio, is the Pulaski County Sheriff's Department. This fact did not deter the unidentified woman from posting the sign, which read, quote, Ray Carmichael, former Commonwealth Attorney, Sam Catron, Sheriff, Woods or Speck, Lester Burns or Chief Larry Godby, I can't spell, I guess, like Bruce Almighty, TV pimps, LMAO, laugh my ass off. This is The Truman Show. What was strange about this particular sign is that it mentioned two individuals that were particularly significant to the Pennyroyal mystery. Sheriff Sammy Catron, who was assassinated at a fish fry in 2002, and Lester Burns, the controversial attorney who was the subject of the book Dark and Bloody Ground, and who, also, was Vice President Spiro Wagner's business partner and one of the original owners of the Mount Victory Mine who sold it to Alexander Guterma. What prompted this woman to post this sign outside of Jarfly, above which we had just finished production on a podcast that mentioned these very individuals? This would not be the only sign that was posted in Somerset. A total of six additional signs appeared in different parts of the downtown area. Associate producers Darian West and Kyle Cadell explained their reaction to the appearance of these crazy signs all over town. I think that it's important to understand the sort of atmosphere that we were in at the time, which was a lot of paranoia. The, the, The documents thing had happened, all of these things had happened that made me at least question 
the people around me and who they were and uh, are these real people, are, are, like these new people. Because it, Somerset is a weird place like that. There were a lot of lawyers that had just moved here and they were moving away. And then there were new people in town. And it was like, are, are these people real people or is it, you know, is it something else? And so that is always in, in my head. And also just the, the local sort of the crazy people that there are, you know. It would have to be this group, like, delusion thing that so many people would be in on that I that alone would be a bigger mystery than anything we've uncovered. From the very beginning, they're posting about the local mystery of specific people like Sam Catron or Lester Burns or people that are that are mentioned in Penny Royal, but these pe- these are people that could not, or I would guess had not listened to Penny Royal, right? And are there coded warnings in there, you know? Because it's like, it's sort of apocalyptic in, in nature. And it's like, are, is there something I'm supposed to be understanding about this? You know, is this part about the Truman Show, some reference to something I'm supposed to understand in the sense of, should I do something about it? You know, am I Truman? You know, you don't know. <laughs> so the next thought is, what if there's this just invisible, psychic tin can on a string right in front of us that we're just speaking into as a mouthpiece that we don't see and we don't see where that string goes and maybe it goes to somewhere else where these people can pick it up and they can see this tin can and they can listen to our voices and our thoughts that sound like crazy ramblings and then they go through one more filter And then it just becomes weird-ass signs left in downtown Somerset. You know, what if if it is the same source, but during—we're just picking up on the radio station a little bit clearer than these people are. Is he just picking up on the ideas that we're putting out there? Is he picking up on some sort of frequency, some sort of psychic frequency, and we're just pumping that— psychic atmosphere with these ideas as we're talking about them and 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 freaking out about them is that sort of generating this psychic noise that's picked up by other people you know or who is convincing who to put these signs up you know is it just convenient to find a guy that's kind of crazy and you give him some money or some food and have him put that sign up out there or you know it's it's hard to say where it came from witnesses reported not just a woman but also two separate men also assisting in posting the signs. And all of them contained similar messages, specifically that this town was a cult. Call the FBI. None of this is real. It's the Truman Show. References to Sammy Catron and Lester Burns and other local political figures. It all culminated in similar messages being spray-painted on the roof of a house on the main road into downtown Somerset. This town is a cult. The cyber terrorists have taken over. Nazis and MKUltra call the FBI. These messages were sprayed in very large, very visible letters. A few weeks would pass, and then the house was condemned and torn down by the city. When the initial signs appeared, I doubted that these particular people had listened to the podcast. But had we somehow broadcast a message had sent out a transmission that these individuals and others like them were picking up and tuning into. Maybe they had no idea where the transmissions were coming from. 
It felt like the signs were definitely for us, or in response to us, as if the universe or some cosmic force was answering back. Another wink, but possibly an unwelcomed one. It felt all too like we were becoming part of the story, and that the story was reacting to us. A few weeks after we discovered Katerma and the Mount Victory Mine, I was able to obtain two original prints of some photos of him from the Associated Press. These were original archive prints of Katerma appearing at his trial for the largest stock fraud in U.S. history prior to 1959. He was wearing a single black glove on his left hand, wearing a khaki trench coat, and placing his black bowler hat on his bald head. I've never seen anyone that looked more like a Bond villain in real life. Around the time that I had received the photos, we were hosting a fundraiser for the Master Musicians Festival in our studio above Jarfly Brewing. I was on the board of directors, and we were raising money for the nonprofit festival, courting some of the members of the community that we thought might contribute to the almost three-decade continued success of the event. It was during the party that Darian rushed up to me and said I had to come into the studio control room, that there was someone sitting in there that I needed to talk to. I followed him and found a woman holding those two photos of Guterma in her shaking hands. This is the man, she said. This is the man that I see every night in my dreams. He was exactly the man in the pictures, she explained, and swore that the single black leather glove on his left hand and his black bowler hat were identical to what was worn by the figure who tormented her nightly. I told her that this particular man, Alexander Guterma, definitely lived in Pulaski County in the 1970s, but had long since been dead. This man never lived, she told us, the photos in her hand shaking even more violently. He was never alive. He isn't a man. He's something else, and he never lived. About that time, her husband entered the room, saw his wife holding the photos, and looked at me, asking, is she telling you about the guy she dreams about? Pretty fucking strange, isn't it? I told her that Guterma was in fact alive until 1977, when his plane crashed in Brooklyn. She was adamant that I was wrong, and said the house that she and her husband lived in their farm where she had dreamt of this man and where so many other strange things had happened and continued to happen was located near the Mount Victory Mine. Was Guterma actually visiting this woman in her dreams? Did they own property near the mine close enough for the entity of Guterma to visit her? Pennyroyal had yet to be released at that time so there was no way she could have known who Alexander Guterma was. No one knew who he was in any greater way before we began to research him, and definitely not before we discovered his connection to the Mount Victory Mine. So why was this woman seeing someone that fit his description in her dreams every night? Why were strange things happening on their property, a large farm near the mine? After this, 
and as we got deeper into the research in the first season, I couldn't help but wonder if somehow, in some fucking crazy way, we had created a tulpa that was Alexander Guterma, and it was visiting people that live near the mine. One of the interesting things about Downard as a hyperstition and and that whole thing is that is how there's a quality to hyperstitionalism or hyperstitionism that's a little bit strange, but it does it does sort of lend itself to understanding this as a hyperstition. And that is that you're that in linear time, your uh, knowledge of that person grows. Right. So the the idea isn't that you look back in the past and you look at everything chronologically. It's that your understanding of that person grew chronologically. Right. And that could involve any number of pasts or, or possible pasts. And um, in the case of uh, of Borges, the thing that, that I thought was interesting when we were looking at that in that lens is that. This is like part of his original work. The, the, one of his the, his seminal work is a book called Ficciones, which is a, a collection of short stories that all have a certain unreal quality to them. First story in that collection is a short story called Tlone, Ukbar, and Orbis Tertius. And none of these terms are, uh, are any easier in Spanish or English. They're just sort of strange invented terms for Tlone and Ukbar, and uh, uh, Orbis Tertius means like like the third orb or the in Latin. So in this story, the so I, I had this memory of the story, which is maybe interesting. Uh, and I had read this in college and then I reread it again, uh, you know, in the past couple of years. But in my original memory of it, he's trying to con- to convince a, a a writer of detective fiction in Argentina named Bioy Casares. They were like co-writers in a lot of ways. And they wrote, they were both inspired by British detective fiction like Sherlock Holmes and stuff like that. And uh, in this story, Borges as himself is trying to convince Bioy Casares that there is a article in a certain year, I can't remember if it's like the 1923 Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, in a certain year of this, there was an article about a civilization called Sloan. And so in that uh, short article, there was like a description of some civilization. I think it may have been in Mesopotamia or somewhere. I can't remember where it happened. They, As these two guys are discussing this, the uh, Billy Cassatis is like, well, you know, I've read that and I don't think that's in there. You know, it's so they, they go back and forth in it. And so essentially he is spliced in the, the article, right? And he's trying to convince him that that has always been there. And so it ends up that uh, he knows himself, Borges knows himself, that he has is doing this as a joke, right? Well, then the Bioy finds another copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica with that article in there. And then at, throughout the story, what was an invention becomes reality that's sort of invading their reality. And so it's based on an idea that there was a civilization called Tlone, which was sort of a Gnostic civilization that somehow passed down its knowledge through generations until the 17th century in England. And this is a really thinly veiled uh, 
reference to Rosicrucianism that's happening at the same time. And so that that at that point, there were a group of people who had come into the secret knowledge and they were and they were passing it down through generations by selecting one person to tell that secret to. And then and, and this is sort of foundational to the myth of Rosicrucianism, too. So in that situation, it comes to mid-century U.S., the mid-century U.S. There's a guy named Buckley uh, who is sort of running something like the Free, like a Freemasonic organization, and he is trying to sort of manifest this kingdom that was predicted in Sloan called Ukbar, which is like this future, it's supposed to be a continent, right? And it's sort of interesting that it's an American making this whole uh, literary transition that's about to happen, but he makes the case that it should not be just a, a, a continent, it should be a world. And so he creates more mythology around around this, right? And then as the story's progressing, what's interesting is in 1941, the first artifacts start appearing from the civilization. And I, I can't remember what the what the first things were, but they're, they're, they're not super important, right? By uh, 1940, I think it's like 1944, the entire encyclopedia of Tlone is discovered in a in a library in Memphis, Tennessee, and that's it's, it's really strange when you like think about Downard and his whole connection to Memphis, and and that and that also one of the only strange connections with the Downard thing that that we, one of the, the strange connections we found was this picture of these encyclopedias on a shelf that was in a realty listing, and those encyclopedias for, were from around this year, and they're they're so out of place, but that was part of a listing of the house where Downard's def definitely lived, you know? And so it's like there's that whole thing full circle. But but in the in the story, everything just becomes increasingly real until Ukbar takes it, it overtakes the the uh, existing reality, right? It just sort of invades it almost by happenstance. You know, it could have almost been a joke that Bjorka Siders had found a, 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 another copy of this, right? And But over time, what happens to be kind of deniable becomes undeniable. And that, I think, is a key to, to the whole thing. I've always been fascinated by the concept of tulpas. The story of Alexander David Neal creating the tulpa that looked like a friar tuck-like monk that she lost control of and was eventually forced to destroy has intrigued me since I encountered it. If you're unfamiliar with the concept of a tulpa, it's essentially a thought form manifested through regular meditation and mental focus. Tulpas are akin to imaginary friends with the potential to affect physical reality, if sufficiently powerful. My own personal view of tulpas is that the would-be creator is essentially 3D printing the thought form. Each daily focused meditation on the formation of the tulpa prints another layer of its existence. Each successive day gives the tulpa more permanence and another layer of reality. When the tulpa has enough layers and achieves enough complexity, it can begin to take actions of its own. Tulpas may also be the method by which some Buddhist masters 
were able to appear in multiple places at once by creating a topic duplicate of themselves and projecting it elsewhere. There are also thought forms that are created through collective belief, known as egregores. We've discussed these previously and mentioned them briefly in the first season of Pennyroyal. Taking into account the woman's story about Guterma making nightly visits in her dreams, is it possible that what she was encountering was in fact a topic thought form or egregore created as a result of the intense research we were performing and the subsequent release of Pennyroyal. Before Pennyroyal, Alexander Guterma was virtually lost to history. Very little was known about him when he was alive, hence the moniker Mr. X. And with his death, he virtually vanished from history, existing only on the fringes of historical research. Our rediscovery of Guterma and the resulting investigation has breathed new life into his memory and story. Now thousands of people are thinking about him, imagining him, especially in the context of the Pennyroyal mystery. He's being researched by historians with newfound interest and intrigue. And the most viewed and recognizable image of him is the associated press photo where he's wearing one black glove on his left hand. Did Guterma leave an everlasting imprint on the area near the Mount Victory Mine? Or is it possible that by releasing Pennyroyal, we have collectively created a topic thought form of Guterma that people are psychically interacting with. If the latter is the case, then we must consider that this topic form is retroactively engaging people prior to the release of Pennyroyal. This would imply that topic forms and egregores are not constrained by time and space and can travel into the past or the future. Which brings me to what all of this got me thinking about. Let's take the Guterma example and assume that it is possible that we have somehow given Guterma a posthumous existence which has taken on a topic life of its own. In terms of it being an observed information structure, this one appears to be growing in complexity. In an effort to understand more about tulpas and hyperstitions, I reached out to Rao and Elizabeth Cabrales at the University of Amsterdam to discuss the origin of these concepts and how time plays a crucial role in interpreting the events which have unfolded and continue to unfold in the Pennyroyal mystery. I am an experimental time theorist, occult scholar, philosopher of art metaphysics. Um, I have a master's in Western esotericism that I got at the University of Amsterdam. So the, the Borges thing will be a good way to kind of talk it out after the definition, because a high hyperstition is a fiction that makes itself real. And it does this through nonlinear time dynamics. And a hyperstition or the idea of hyperstition is itself hyperstitional. So in the 90s, the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit, the CCRU, they discovered the idea of hyperstition through various communications uh, with entities, actors, so on and so forth. And by discovering the term, 
the term itself has started to spiral backward and forward, kind of undulating through time, finding instances of itself in the past where it always was, just not yet. So Borges was always a hyperstition once it was. So it's not like this causal history of a, a tradition getting kind of developed progressively. It's an acausal kind of spiralmatic, chaotic thing. I've been able to push it back to Nietzsche so far, but it could probably go a lot further. Um, it's but if you can think hyperstitionally, you can spread hyperstition through time because it's like mimetic. It's a it's a time virus itself, but it also locates time viruses. There's like a refractive element of it and it's doing as it. Like a performative, what's it called? Like, you know, a performative contradiction is where you, the, the idea itself contradicts itself. Is it, so it's almost like a performative positive thing. It causes more instances of itself almost like a, that's interesting. Uh, you, you know, like, um, so I wonder how connected this is with some other literary things that are sort of adjacent to this, like um, the like you know how Cervantes wrote uh, Don Quixote in two two stages, and what one was before he was in a war and one was after. Huckleberry Finn is identical in its construction. It was half of it was written prior to the Civil War and half was written after, and so like the the in both of these cases. Huckleberry Finn and Don Quixote discover that they're characters in a story, which is like right. a Pirandello thing. Like that's similar in a sense, where they're almost aware of their own fiction, right? And so I wonder if if it's almost like an extension of that that we get sort of this this notion. In the Downard Mythos, one of the most intriguing details is the strange device that he purportedly discovered in the tomb of Dr. Simon Pendleton Kramer, a famous neurosurgeon who maintained a home in Cincinnati but was purportedly buried in a cemetery in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. Young Downard was enlisted by someone alleging to be Dr. Kramer's son to help him break into his father's tomb to retrieve some items the elder Kramer had been interred with. The man could not enter his father's tomb for fear of disrespecting his remains, so he asked Downard to enter the tomb in his stead. Inside, Downard found the ritually beheaded body of the doctor and boxes of grave goods, one of which contained, quote, several books with the name James Shelby Downard on them, along with a peculiar-looking instrument with a metal nameplate riveted to it, saying Dayton Witch, a paper tag tied to it had Brunel University written on it. At first, I thought it was some sort of adding machine that had been manufactured in Dayton, Ohio. The Dayton Witch was in excellent condition, and it couldn't have been sitting in the tomb for any length of time. Its power cord could operate on a 110 voltage house current. There was also something on it that looked like a dry cell battery, a power pack maybe. Just for the hell of it, I turned it on, and it chattered away like it was possessed. All that day I tried to figure out how to work the Dayton Witch. I guessed it might be a war surplus instrument for coding and decoding. When I made some cipher settings, it made sounds that I imagined signified recognition at the very least, but that was as far as I got. 
This is from page 143 to 145 in James Shelby Downard's The Carnivals of Life and Death. What was the date in which? It's always fucking fascinated me. There's only one other reference to it, and that appears in Elena Freeland's book, Under an Eye and Eye Sky. But, of course, she is the editor of Downard's autobiography, so it stands to reason that she would have knowledge of it, or even invented the concept of the Dayton Witch. Also, it should be noted that Downard supposedly found these items in 1931, but Brunel University was not founded until 1966. Still, the idea that this might be some cryptological device used in the rituals of a secret society or some strange intelligence service intrigued me greatly. Even if the date in which wasn't real, were there other such devices in history that might have been used to decode reality or function as a device to understand occulted knowledge? The connection established in the Downard Mythos between the Dayton Witch and cybernetics is extremely telling as well. There was another university in England that was also established around the same time that Brunel University was founded, and that was Warwick University on the outskirts of Coventry. It was there in the 1990s that hyperstitions were first officially conceived by a controversial figure named Nick Land. Much like magician and occultist Kenneth Grant, Nick Lamb began to incorporate the Lovecraftian Cthulhu mythos into the folklore and frameworks he and the CCRU were building to explore human consciousness, time, and belief. According to the tenets of hyperstition, there is no difference in principle between a universe, a religion, or a hoax, states the CCRU. In his work, Accelerationism, Hyperstition, and Myth Science, author and researcher Simon O'Sullivan examines the ingredients for hyperstition, as stated originally by the CCRU. Number one, an element of effective culture that makes itself real. Number two, a fictional quantity functional as a time-traveling device. Number three, a coincidence intensifier. And number four, a call to the old ones. One might notice the similarity of this prescription to the synchronistic effects felt in the wake of Hellier's season one release. And arguably, it does in fact fit the description of hyperstition, especially the intensification of coincidences and synchronicities. And with the Penny Royal mystery, the looping back of events in a strange way to create what I believe are information feedback loops is an undeniable feature. And it's very easy in this prescription to replace old ones with the phenomena. So the the CCRU kind of to start there. In the 90s at Warwick University in the the UK, there's a, a series of yearly conferences called the Virtual Futures Conferences. And they're doing research on kind of the overlap between science and technology, cybernetics, the like opening field of virtual reality, what what possibilities the future can hold, what it means for various humanities disciplines experimentally. And through these conferences, a handful of people start talking to each other 
Um, two of them, Nick Land, of course, and Sadie Plant. Uh, Sadie Plant is a cultural theorist, and she's done a lot of research, re- amazing research, on the history of technology and specifically the role that women have played in technology that's been written out of it. And so Sadie Plant starts the CCRU, and Nick Land helps her start it. And then they they just get a bunch of artists who are big in the scene at the time to start doing experimental research. So kind of thinking outside of the confines of what philosophy is, applied philosophy. Um, There's an Afrofuturist scholar, I always say his name wrong, Kato Eshin, but that he brings jungle into the mix, which is electronic music that was kind of coming out of uh, the UK, links into Detroit techno. This brings in Orphan Drift, who's an experimental art collective. Um, so there's there's a bunch of experimental scholars all working together and sharing ideas with each other. That's kind of the basis of it. They do more conferences, more experimental spaces. Eventually, uh, they start doing research in what's called pneumogrammatics, which is Kabbalah, number systems, synchronicities. And this is when all of the the Lovecraft and the magic and kind of the weird stuff starts to come in. This gets articulated through a series of essays, uh, which are in the, the collected writings, CCRU writings now. And they, they give historical narratives for how they found this information, where it came from, how it's continued through time. Um, This Lumerian Time War is one of these essays. And then also there's a section of writings called the Cthulhu Club um, that links in Lovecraft and Kenneth Grant. And eventually this leads to a book called Cyclonopedia, and it pushes the hyperstition, the Cthulhu current into Iran and into its own kind of hyperstition in itself. Outside of the academic stuff, Nick Land leans in to the performative philosophical element hard. And he starts talking in numerical increments, like counting his numbers. Um, he develops these really extreme ticks. And they're, they're interacting with time magical entities. Um, this hasn't really been looked into, so it's it's all kind of overlapping fiction and reality in the first place. But Nick, Nick Land goes full experimental performance, kind of method philosophy, you might call it. Starts channeling things, inviting things to be channeled through him. He's taking a lot of amphetamines. At this time, at Warwick, all of the grad students are starting to congregate around Nick Land as like a cult of personality. People are starting to dress like him. People are starting to talk like him. People are starting to try and think like him. And so you just get this cult of Nick Land, CCRU, uh, doing philosophy magic and developing this system. And the extent to which this affected reality still really hasn't been determined. But Nick Land is, of course, asked to leave the university because it gets too weird and he just gets too extreme. 
so CCRU becomes an underground thing. He helps develop Cyclonopedia, the, the book that comes out of kind of the project. And eventually he gets involved with Menges Molebug, I believe is his name, uh, kind of Silicon Valley alt-right people. They're kind of talk about transhumanism, posthumanism, like how do we fix how broken society is? And this links into like, what's wrong with academia? What's wrong with capitalism? What's wrong with X, Y, Z? But working with this kind of Silicon Valley quasi-fascist space already, the accelerationist, or this thread of accelerationism, the idea is, uh, well, to put it like in tighter terms than it needs to be, it's accelerate kind of the contradictions of the system. So it creates positive feedback and goes into a singularity and breaks itself. And so you get all sorts of kind of uh, alt-right theories around this and through this. Um, and there's so much nuance to it, of course, so I'm just trying to streamline it. But that's you can kind of see how it progresses and just gets intensified. And somewhere something flips over and you start to get the white supremacist idealism as the the face of the beast um but once that happens you can fold that flip back uh and kind of locate it does that mean it was always there does that mean it's there right now we don't really know yet when peter lavinda espoused the belief that fascism was the deadliest egregore that our collective consciousness had ever manifested I doubt he conceived the spread of that force throughout cyberspace and now the crypto space. And while he was succinct in describing the rise of fascism in the long history of American political witchcraft, he was not able to predict the current hold that it has over so many Western psyches, promoting the destruction of egalitarian ideals like education, liberty, and freedom for all. He did not foresee the terrifying rise of the Dark Enlightenment. The Dark Enlightenment is a disturbing philosophy that brings cyborgs into feudalism and merges Silicon Valley's startup ethos with the selective breeding originally proposed by Plato. It's what would happen if more members of the alt-right read Nietzsche and H.P. Lovecraft instead of Donald Trump's tweets. That's a quote from Jessica Klein, author of the article, Here's the Dark Enlightenment explainer you never wanted. Sometimes referred to as the neo-reactionary movement, its supporters oppose democracy, defend traditional hierarchies like gender roles and racial superiority, reject tolerance and equality, hallmarks of the Enlightenment, and embrace authoritarian and fascist political structures. It was Nick Land, during his tenure as prophet of the CCRU, that he also fostered the creation of the Dark Enlightenment. In Land's Dark Enlightenment, there are consistent themes focused on technology, warfare, feudalism, corporate power, and racism. It's an acceleration of capitalism to a fascist point, says Benjamin Noyes, a critical theory professor at the University of Chichester and author of Malign Velocities, Accelerationism and Capitalism. 
The Dark Enlightenment has often been described as a cult-like vision of a dystopian future. It's a worship of corporate power to the extent that corporate power becomes the only power in the world, says David Columbia, a new media professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. He goes on to explain, it becomes militarized and states break down. For some reason, that's difficult to understand. They seem to think these highly weaponized feudal enclaves would be more free than the society we currently have. Land isn't the lone inventor of the Dark Enlightenment movement. According to Matthew Walter, the movement also began because of an American software engineer named Curtis Yarvin, who generally writes under the ridiculous nom de guerre, Mencius Moldbug. Like Land, he also believes that feudalism is superior to democracy. I wanted to understand the Dark Enlightenment better, and also how to combat some of its main tenets, which I saw spreading through the Fortean community. Also, it occurred to me that there had to be hyperstitions that were counter to the narratives that Nick Land and others were attempting to weaponize culturally. And one of the most powerful is the hyperstitional reality created by musician and artist Sun Ra. His imaginative works and creations stood in stark contrast to the inherent racism of the Dark Enlightenment and accelerationism. I contacted Dr. Ronaldo Anderson, Associate Professor of Africology and African American Studies at Temple University in Philadelphia, who also is the executive director and co-founder of the Black Speculative Arts Movement and author of Afrofuturism 2.0, The Rise of Astro-Blackness, published by Lexington Books, to discuss Sun Ra and fighting the racism inherent in accelerationism and the Dark Enlightenment. And that's why uh, I heard some of the followers of that were that the people on January 6th oh, were they're into what they call accelerationism. You know, this Nick Landian stuff, man. And Nick Landy and I, we've banded tweets back and forth a couple times. Land and his idea of the dark enlightenment and his accelerationist way of destroying capitalism, moving beyond capitalism. But yeah, man, people kind of like getting their mail on time, their medicine. And a lot, they like their trash picked up on time. They like a whole bunch of stuff they take for granted. And, and accelerationism is not a governing philosophy. It's kind of a burn everything down philosophy, you know, really. And then, you know, so yeah, that's kind of where stuff is uh, right now. And a lot of people are trying to, we know capitalism is accelerating and Biden, all this stuff is to try and take the worst edges of it off. I like to still have some type of liberal welfare state to kind of deal with the rapid rate of change by saying, look, change is coming, but I'm trying to say you're at least you're, you're going to have health care, some education, and some other stuff to deal with. It. You know, so, because uh, even he knows they can't stop it. Like, I, my background in communication studies and modern communication theory comes out of that stuff in the 50s. Okay? Uh, you know, when they're dealing with computers and technology now, they leave out all the other little influences that come along with it. They just talk about calm theory in terms of, uh, I don't know what name is, with computers. And they talk about communication being this transactional thing, like it resembles. Oh, Claude Shannon, probably, right? Shannon, that's yeah. right. Shannon. That's yeah, right. Claude Shannon. Claude Shannon. Yeah. 
And then from Claude Shannon, you get a beeline into uh, Moore's Law, okay? Our transistors in the 60s. And that's why uh, Sun Rob is becoming such an interesting figure because all of this mystical esoteric stuff he picks up from World War II moving forward, that's when he begins to combine it with emerging computer technology and experimentation in some of these labs and experimenting with sound and tonality and harmony. And he mixes it in with that esoteric stuff that whatever, and that's why people, I, I mean, I'm still learning new stuff about him after reading that for several years. I'm making different connections about um, certain things. Like he had, he put out an album that was called uh, Cosmic Tunes for Mental Health. <laughs> you know, when, uh, now a lot of people were playing during the pandemic here. And the British republished one of his albums, Languidity, that he did back in the 70s, that, you know, this guy is on to something with sound. And as a lot of people know in witchcraft, it was about sound in terms of how you link together, create a certain town, sound and harmony, and it could impact rhythm and stuff around you. And that's the kind of stuff Sun Ra was tapping into, which is why Europeans are so fascinated with Sun Ra. This other stuff, you know, these other things about Afrofuturism, man, that's whether it's Janelle Monet, man, that's the kitty stuff. Sun Ra is still a person who was heavily deep into this stuff. Um, really, really into it. And that's why the Europeans just focus on that. And that's why the, the English came with this term hyperstition as a response to his myth science. Uh, and then DJ Spooky in the early part of this century tried to come up with something rhythm science, but it wasn't really well all the way thought out to a certain extent. It was an incredibly strange revelation and experience to discover Alexander Guterma and his connection to the Mount Victory Mine, especially since so many witnesses we interviewed indicated that the mine was somehow associated with a cult or a magical group. And then to discover that the mine was also owned by Spiro Agnew, Vice President of the United States, who with his business partner, Lester Burns, sold it to Guterma, Mr. X. I couldn't quite wrap my mind around the implications and the connections to so many other events and people spiraled out from there, from the mine. I remember telling Darian at the time that I didn't think it was possible for us to find anything in this mystery as incredibly weird as the Guterma connection. Then we received a message on Facebook from a researcher who created an account on Facebook just to ask us if we had ever looked into Chuck Hayes. The message attached a newspaper article that read, Smuggling Ring, Former Somerset Businessman, to testify before grand jury. At the time, I thought, who the fuck is Chuck Hayes? Since then, we haven't stopped asking that question, and we've been down the Hayes rabbit hole ever since. All right, you ready to have your fucking mind blown? Yeah. This is, this is, this is pure, unadulterated conspiracy theory, okay? And it is totally fucking weird. <laughs> somebody creates a Facebook account to to join our Patreon and then send me a message. 
Okay, that's 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 the only thing the account was used for. Mm-hmm. And it said, "Have you guys looked at Charles Hayes?" And I'm like, oh, "Who the fuck is this?" Right? And it's a and it's a newspaper article, and it's this guy who looks like a Bond villain, kind of like Guterma, you know. And and it says. Uh, largest gemstone seizure in U.S. history. I'm like, okay. So I, I find this article, and it turns out in 1985, this guy from Somerset, from Pulaski County, was in Brazil, and he was involved in the in smuggling the largest number of uncut gemstones into the U.S. in U.S. history. Okay. And I'm like, what? You know, because, you know, it's, I've, I found all the downard stuff. And I'm like, well, this is fucking crazy. Like another dude that I didn't even know anything about. Who the fuck is this person that sent me this article? So I, I start digging into who Charles Hayes is, right? I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Why is he in Brazil? Why is he in Pulaski County? So I find out that he started out as um, he had a dance hall the earliest newspaper articles and he didn't have an entertainment license, but they had this hotel on the, on the lake, right. Called the Beckett and like Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah, dude. No, seriously. And they were running honeypot uh, schemes on politicians. And it was his mother that founded, like his mother started it. And then he like took it over and so this guy's a super eccentric guy. They, they Chuck Hayes, Charles Hayes. They also called him Chalmer Hayes. And in 1975, he gets busted uh, here in Kentucky running guns and smuggling weapons. And we're not talking about normal weapons. We're talking about rocket launchers and, like, heavy-duty weapons. It wasn't like an illegal weapons charge. I mean, he was a, a fucking weapons smuggler. Yeah. And I was like, well, this is fucked up. <laughs> what the fuck is this? So then in 85, he gets busted for the, for the gemstones. And then in, uh, not in 93, he, he's known as a scrap dealer, a Kentucky scrap dealer. And everyone calls him a redneck, right? So he is buying government surplus auctioned equipment and buys these computers for $45, all these pallets of computers, from a government auction in Lexington by the Justice Department. And this is all, these are all, everything I'm telling you right now is in newspaper articles, right? And so he fucking buys this equipment and immediately the U S government for some reason comes down on him and says, we need those back. We forgot to delete some software. Right. And he's like, fuck you. I bought it. It's mine. So then they tell him, if you don't give it back to us, we're going to arrest you. And he's like, you can't cause I fucking bought it. You know, it's totally legal. You did, you fucked up, you know? So then they raid his farm. The FBI raids the farm. They take the equipment, they delete it, they give it back to him, right? He sues the government, ends up winning a couple million dollars or some crazy shit. Anyway, he they, they, they say the reason that they had to do it was because it had undercover agents' names, right? 
Well, it was the Promise software. Damn. Okay. Now there's tons of newspaper articles about this. It turns out that the reason he knew to buy that equipment was because he was he is supposedly, but I do now believe that this is true, was an ex-CIA contractor who was traveling around the world selling the promise software mm. to various governments. They so got he was in, one of the guys, yeah. He was one of the salesmen. Okay. The way I understand Chuck Hayes, he's from Nancy, Kentucky. So for people that don't know the geography of Somerset, Nancy is west of Somerset, basically part of Somerset now in a sense, but it is sort of its own little town. He was from there and he ran a nightclub and at one time a hotel, the Beckett Hotel. When we started to look into him, the first, our first inroads into it was someone had sent an article about him uh, smuggling the gemstone. You know, the CIA was involved in a lot of the military dictatorships in Latin America. Right after the United Fruit Company fiasco, there was um, sort of a leftist wave in Latin, in, because of Cuba and the success in Cuba. And it's still that way now. I mean, there's still quasi-socialists parties and but the military regime part is interesting because it's part of the containment of communism right and so it's all justified all these really strange atrocities that happen and it's ironic too that they happened at the hands of a lot of times generals who had experience in world war ii and like that were immigrants from europe Right, and so though a lot of the people that were like Germans and and uh, of especially Italians were uh, ended up being in these the heads of these regimes. In Argentina, it was an Italian guy, and in uh, Chile, it was an Italian guy too. So in 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 in, uh, in all of those cases, they used a lot of the same sort of methods of suppression of information. A lot of my friends from Brazil had experience with with that one but they were all sort of different they were all supported and i guess i i I thought i've always kind of questioned you know you hear a lot of people who really get into this topic a lot of uh sort of like in college a lot of the really like chomsky sort of leaning people will talk about these issues you know all the time And, and it makes you think could that really have happened and now you think it probably did you know it's it's probably the case that he was involved there i haven't thought about that He's in Brazil for five years and is known as an international attorney. There are a number of articles that list him as an attorney. And he wasn't, right? And Brazil is one of the places where the Promise software was found out, right? It's believed that the gemstones that he received were payment for the for the promise software, right? Yeah. And he got busted bringing them back in. There was a Berea student that was involved in this, right? Now I'm finding all this stuff. I'm like, what the fuck, right? How is this this tied to Somerset? You know. So um, so then I find out that uh, later um, he is called to testify in the Inslaw case in Chicago and they were like he's telling everybody he's like yeah I'm an ex you know CIA contractor I was selling this shit and then uh, the government's saying he's a fucking psychopath schizophrenic junk dealer from Somerset Kentucky and he's a redneck he was not in the CIA right 
they call him to testify. He starts testifying. They enact the National Security Act and seal the fucking testimony, right? So then you're like, well, why would they do that if this is just some fucking redneck? Emma Northbest outlines the promise case on muckrock.com. The promise scandal, once labeled the scandal that wouldn't die, lives on according to a recent FBI FOIA response. The affair centered around the government's theft of the Promise software, a forerunner of the infamous PRISM, and the far-reaching fallout which allegedly included everything from fraud to covert operations and surveillance to Danny Casalero's mysterious death and remains the subject of an investigation decades after the Department of Justice declared the matter officially closed. I used muckrock.com to file our FOIA requests regarding Guterma which, to my utter surprise, ended up being very successful. And we obtained more than 1,600 pages of documents. However, when I filed FOIA requests for Chuck Hayes, Charles Hayes, as he's properly known, directly referencing newspaper articles and federal court case numbers, I received a Glomar response from the FBI. If you're like me, you've probably never heard of a Glomar response. I hadn't. A Glomar response, also known as Glomarization or Glomar denial, is the term used in U.S. law to refer to a response to a request for information that will neither confirm nor deny the existence of the information sought. It originates with the February 1975 story in the Los Angeles Times regarding the USS Hughes Glomar Explorer, a large salvage vessel built by the CIA for its project Azorian, a covert attempt to salvage a sunken Soviet submarine. The CIA sought to stop the story's publication, and in response, the author, journalist Harriet Ann Filippi, requested that the CIA provide disclosure of both the Glomar Project and its attempt to censor the story. The CIA chose to neither confirm nor deny both the project's existence and its attempts to keep the story unpublished. And so the phrase Glomar stuck to any response that was to neither confirm nor deny. In their response to my FOIA request, the FBI actually stated the following, Please be advised the FBI will neither confirm nor deny the existence of such records pursuant to FOIA exemptions B6 and B7 of 5 U.S.C. 552. I also received a response to my FOIA request to the CIA regarding Charles Hayes' files. They were happy to comply if I could produce a certificate of death. We have yet to determine that Hayes is actually dead. It's entirely possible that he's living here in Pulaski County in a nursing home or extended care facility. That's part of the Hayes mystery. We can't find any trace of him. As for the Inslaw case and promise, you can find tons of discussion, information, and documents on the Muckrock website. I also highly recommend using Muckrock to file your FOIA requests. It's a great platform for researchers. So what is the Inslaw case? And what's this promise software that's at the heart of it? In the early 1980s, the DOJ became aware that its case management system was in dire need of automation and a more efficient way of sharing information between different departments. There was a Department of Justice database, a CIA database, an Attorney General's database, an IRS database, and many, many more government databases. But none of them could share information in any meaningful way. 
To solve this problem, the DOJ awarded the Enslaw Corporation a $9.6 million contract to install the public domain version of Promise in 20 U.S. attorney's offices as a pilot program. Once it was shown to be successful, the company installed Promise in the remaining 74 federal prosecutor's offices around the country. Every use of promise in the court system is tracking people, said Enslaw President Bill Hamilton. You can rotate the file by case, defendant, arresting officer, judge, defense lawyer, and it's tracking all the names of all the people in all the cases. What this means is that promise can provide a complete rundown of all federal cases in which a lawyer has been involved and all the cases in which a lawyer has represented defendant A, at which stage in each of the cases the lawyer agreed to a plea bargain, and so on. Based on this information, promise can help a prosecutor determine when a plea will be taken in a particular type of case. It was essentially data mining the semantic behavior inherent in all of these court cases. But the real power of promise, according to Hamilton, is that with a staggering 570,000 lines of computer code, promise can integrate innumerable databases without requiring any reprogramming. In essence, promise can turn blind data into information. And allegedly, it's been used as a powerful tracking device capable of monitoring intelligence operations and agents and targets instead of legal cases. At the time of its inception, Promise was the most powerful program of its type. According to federal court documents, Promise was stolen from Inslaw by the Department of Justice. And according to sworn affidavits, Promise was then given or sold at a profit to Israel and as many as 80 other countries by Dr. Earl W. Bryan, a man with close personal and business ties to then-President Ronald Reagan. A House Judiciary Committee report released in September 1992 found evidence raising serious concerns that high officials at the Department of Justice executed a premeditated plan to destroy Inslaw and co-opt the rights to the Promise software. Enter Chuck Hayes. In August 1992, he was called to testify in Chicago in the Inslaw case before a grand jury. Then, in April 1996, Hayes provided Inslaw attorneys with an affidavit that detailed the government's use of the stolen promise software. I do not understand the whole lawsuit that uh, against that that he that he uh, provided that that they they weren't paid for the software and it was being co-opted and adopted and and all these back doors and all that stuff. That does, it it is interesting that that's the case. But why is the software itself so preserved? Why is it just not recreated in function by a military with an infinite budget? You know, it doesn't make any sense at all that they would appropriate it and just assume that they did everything correctly and just used it blindly. You know, I, I, that to me is the biggest mystery about it. You know, it doesn't, uh, there is nothing, there is, in, in current technology, there is nothing that is developed by a private corporation that could not be immediately replicated by the government. The, the way that, I, I think the biggest mystery about the Charles Hayes thing is this promise software. They developed the software that tracks financial transactions. It's apparently so generic and this is important to think about, right, in terms of development. It's not so sophisticated that it uh, can do these, like, really incredible things. Because this is prior 
to early machine learning even. So there's, there's nothing like that happening. The, the, what must have been the case is that the company developed almost you know, maniacally, a set of bridges for different financial systems, right? And so some of the, this comes out in some of the paperwork about it because some of the banks consulted with Inslaw for recommendations of how to modernize their own systems, right? And so it must have been the case that he had a series of bridges that could interface with banks, get basic information about accounts, and then somehow was threading that information together to form associations between people. So if all you have is the bank account information and a way or a, a bank account number and a way to get the person's name out of that, then you can imagine how powerful that would be because then you can scan through their account to map out every transfer to another account. If you were to put this into something like we're doing, you would instantly see this information. This, to me, that is interesting, right? It, it, you know, it still does sound as, I mean, if you think about what I'm, what I'm describing, it has two functions. It, you, it takes an account number, looks up the person's name from that account by hitting those bank servers in some proprietary way, and then getting that information back. That's all you need for this whole thing to work, right? And to be exactly what Charles Hayes is describing, at, you know? At scale. Yeah, at scale, yeah. And so... I guess you could think of it like this. You would have to have, you're probably getting like ledgers of information and then you're going to go through in a sort of a, a loop. You're going to go through each transact, each, you're, you're getting the main account, then every account that it's hitting, right? And then every account that those are hitting. So it's recursive in that way. And then it would have to build somehow some sort of way for you to understand these relationships, right? And, for that to be meaningful. I guess you could think of it like uh, uh, who's uh, the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon is probably sort of similar to what they're doing. It's showing how far is Bill Clinton from this this situation, right? right? And it's like two or three transactions, right? And so like it would show you the smallness of the, you know, the hyper rich world. I, that could play into the sort of the, the crazy supercomputer idea, you know? So no one knows what he testified to, but he was in the Insulaw case as a main witness. That was fucking crazy. Right? So so then I start to find thousands of articles about this guy, right? Like, there are just thousands and thousands of conspiracy articles on all these websites about Chuck Hayes. I mean, he's like a star in the conspiracy world that I had never heard of, right? And... And people have compiled whole chronologies of this guy's life and and articles about these things, especially a guy named Jay Orland Gravy, right? He's like obsessed with Charles Hayes. So um, Hayes starts, this, this starts to become part of the narrative. He says that he is the founder of a group called the Fifth Column, and it is composed of ex-CIA white hat hackers who got their hands on the Promise software and Rescontiuto, or whatever the fuck his name is in that case, right? The the guy that was on the Indian reservation developing this stuff, he put a back door in, right? Yeah. Supposedly, 
he handed it off to Hayes in the fifth column to help it. He was, they were the ones that helped put that back door in. Riscontito wasn't a, a programmer, right? Mm-hmm. But the people he used was Chuck Hayes in the fifth column. But what he didn't know was that they put their own back door in. And so they were using the software to track down corrupt politicians in the U.S. government. And then they were putting together these dossiers. And then a a courier would deliver this manila envelope to a senator and it would show all the connections. And then there would be a letter that said, if you don't resign within 24 hours, this will go public. And so during the period that Chuck Hayes says this was going on, there were the most, and this is actually verifiable, there were the most resignations of U.S. politicians in U.S. history. Okay? And so he says they were using the promise software to end corruption. They had all been fucked by the CIA just like Inslaw was, right? And... Um, and and so that's why he knew to go after the Promise software in Lexington at this auction and to recover it. Once you go down the Hayes rabbit hole, you discover a vast mythos of stories and allegations and just enough reality to make you question yourself and believe that all of it's true. But could it be true? And what I'll refer to as the vintage conspiracy community the one that existed in the alt.conspiracy Usenet groups. Hayes is a legend, one of the official pantheon. He's also another Oswald, in the same way that it was disputed that Oswald was a CIA agent or FBI informant. Chuck Hayes was called a junk dealer and redneck, and the U.S. government repeatedly denied his involvement in the CIA. That is, until he testified at the Inslaw case in Chicago in August 1992 and the National Security Act was enacted to seal his testimony. And there's the allegation that he was leading a group of ex-CIA contractors and hackers calling itself the Fifth Column. The phrase Fifth Column is a reference to any group of people who undermine a larger group from within. This group was driven by a common goal, stop the rampant political corruption that they perceive to be spreading through the upper echelons of Congress and the U.S. government. And in order to achieve this goal, they used a controversial software called Promise, designed to allow U.S. intelligence services to spy on allies and enemies. As mentioned earlier, the Promise software was peddled to as many as 88 foreign governments by contractors and agents working for the Department of Justice, the NSA, and the CIA. A number of international banks in Switzerland and elsewhere also purchased the Promise software in an effort to standardize their wire transfer documentation. None of these governments or institutions knew that the software included a trapdoor application that not only allowed the U.S. government and its intelligence agencies to monitor money laundering and financial transactions, but also to modify and doctor those transactions without anyone's knowledge. One of the men rumored to have been one of the sellers of the Promise software was none other than Pulaski County native Charles Hayes, who took it to Brazil in the mid-80s as a CIA contract agent. 
Hayes was also caught up in the seizure of stolen gemstones when he returned to the U.S. from Brazil. Dr. Earl Bryan, himself convicted of multi-million dollar international financial fraud, had been California's Secretary of Health during Reagan's governorship in the 1970s and was also given the promised software to sell around the world. During a sales trip to Brazil in 1985, Brian allegedly told Hayes about Promise and brought him in on the operation. David Baker, a journalist for the Lexington Herald-Leader, explained what he had uncovered regarding Hayes in a series of articles in 1990, stating, One person who might have had a view of how Promise works was Charles Hayes. Newspapers identified Hayes as a salvage dealer in Pulaski County, Kentucky, who purchased $45 worth of surplus computer equipment from the government in July 1990. The equipment included 13 terminals, 9 printers, 2 cartridge module drives, 19 backup cartridges, and 2 central memory units, equipment that had been used by the U.S. Attorney's Office since 1983 to maintain information via promise on the Witness Protection Program, informants, office employees, and outstanding grand jury cases. In August, when federal officials discovered that a weak magnetic screwdriver had failed to purge this information from the equipment adequately, two FBI agents dispatched to make inquiries of Hayes were kicked out. Three days later, Hayes began to cooperate with the U.S. Attorney's Office, denied that he had possession of any information that might have been on the equipment, and invited an inspection. Inspectors discovered that the serial numbers of the two cartridge modules that Hayes claimed were the ones he bought did not match the numbers of the modules the Justice Department had sold. Hayes then claimed he had sold the modules, but did not name the purchasers until after federal officials filed a lawsuit. Justice Department attorneys later claimed that Hayes had indeed tried to sell the secret information to an undercover informant, but criminal charges were never filed. The case led to a congressional investigation of computer security. The Justice Department now tosses, rather than sells, its extra data storage devices. Hayes moved back to Pulaski County and his hometown of Nancy, Kentucky, just outside of Somerset and purportedly used a salvage company specializing in computer parts as a CIA cover. The Cray supercomputer that he constructed for the fifth column was sourced for the most part from purchases at Department of Defense and Naval auctions through his salvage and scrap company. According to witnesses, the fifth column's work under Hayes' direction was originally being conducted at the government's behest. Veteran investigative journalist James Norman has written that besides penetrating the international banking system, the fifth column succeeded in breaching and downloading information from over 50 intelligence services around the globe, including the Soviet KGB and the Israeli Mossad. Hayes says that he further customized the software to sort through vast amounts of information at astounding data rates, which could be quickly and easily downloaded and analyzed offline to search financial transactions for suspicious activity. Hayes also alleged that the CIA didn't hold up their end of the bargain and that as a result, he and the other four members of the fifth column decided to go rogue and create their own private currency tracking enterprise. On an official basis, says former Wharton School finance professor 
and money laundering expert, Jay Orland Graby, a friend of Hayes. Quote, people associated with the fifth column had tried to take their evidence to the appropriate legislative committees and the Justice Department and ran into a sea of corruption. So they decided to show them that they'll do their job anyway, even if it's in a different form. Another source who requested anonymity in the case stated that he believed Hayes and his associates were absolutely accessing foreign accounts and keeping considerable sums for themselves rather than just transferring money to Federal Reserve accounts. And we personally know from witnesses here in Somerset that Hayes had large amounts of funds coming in from some unknown source, and he began to make a number of large purchases of property and equipment. The fifth column first surfaced publicly in 1995 after James Norman, a senior editor at Forbes, was alerted by Bill Hamilton, president of Inslaw, to Hayes. Norman had previously broken a cover story on Iraqi arms money laundering through oil markets, and Hamilton thought Norman was the journalist who should break the promise case. Norman recalls Hamilton saying, as crazy as the things Hayes said seemed to be, they invariably had a way of proving true six months later. Norman visited Hayes at the Beckett Hotel in Nancy, Kentucky, where they spent the evening discussing promise. Hayes was interested in connections Norman had already discovered involving the Promise software, the NSA, and a Little Rock Bank data processing company then called Systematics. Owned and controlled by Arkansas billionaire Jackson Stevens, Systematics purportedly shuffled money for covert CIA and NSA spying operations. Hayes ultimately provided this information to the late Danny Casalero. Was Hayes a CIA contractor? Did he construct a Cray mainframe supercomputer from salvaged auto parts and use it to combat corruption in the government? To date, no one has been able to definitively say what is true about Hayes' life. But no one can deny that he was certainly the central figure in a series of events that involved intelligence agents and criminal enterprises right here in Pulaski County. The other part of the story, which is fuck, this is crazy. This is not verifiable, but it's still part of this myth, right? And I'm still surprised that this isn't something that's out there. You know, this whole story is crazy. But he, as this junk dealer with these other XCIA uh, hackers, was putting together from auctioned government equipment a Cray supercomputer which was used to control part of the uh, satellite communication system, SATCOM, for the U.S., that's how they were hacking all of these things with promise. And so in order to not be caught by the U.S. government, they put the Cray supercomputer in the back of a semi-trailer and had it driving around Pulaski County and Kentucky as their communications systems to, to hack all the stuff. That story made it into the fucking X-Files. They made an episode about a supercomputer in the back of a semi 
and it's based on this myth, okay? And I'm like, what the fuck, you know? So, so this guy has this group, the fifth column, they're doing this shit, and then he gets busted on a murder for hire charge to have his son assassinated for a hundred dollars. And it's the FBI and they take him down. And he says, I knew it was the FBI. I was joking in the recording because I knew this guy was setting me up. And so it turns out the star witness that said that he would, that what's his name asked him that Hayes asked him to set up the, the murder ended up was a FBI informant and in Tennessee and Knoxville did the same thing as set up another politician for the same FBI agents. This is all verified too. And and so uh, Hayes tried to appeal the conviction because their star witness was also the star witness in another murder for hire case where the FBI had used him to frame a politician, Right. And he was saying, the reason they took me down is because of the promise software, because I lead the fifth column, right? And I'm like, this is crazy that this is also part of the story here in this place, on top of all the other fucking shit we found. Now Chuck Hayes is a thing. And I would have totally missed this, except some anonymous person joined the lodge and sent me a fucking article that said, have you looked at Chuck Hayes? This is one of those conspiracy theories. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's fucking real, you know, but it's like, it's one of those things that's like, what the fuck is this? Oh, shit. Anyway, back to Casalero, right? When fucking Casalero died, guess who all of it, most of his information came from? He had hundreds of phone calls with Chuck Hayes. The promise shit comes, all of his octopus stuff originates with Chuck Hayes. That's why I wanted to talk to Ken Thomas to confirm that that's true. Yeah, you'll right? you'll get in touch with them. We'll figure it out. But but think about that, dude. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, fucking nuts, dude. Well, Danny Casalero was a, a journalist, and he was um, supposedly on the cusp of. Uh, revealing something he called the octopus, which had to do with the Justice Department's theft of a company called Inslaw's uh, program called the Prosecutor's Management Information System, or otherwise known as Promise Software. And I guess this would have been very... um, you know, very good software for compiling and organizing case data um, and data on individuals throughout uh, the country and different governments' uh, information systems where they could share information. And um, the intelligence agencies were, you know, also very interested because it would be a way to track agents and make, I guess, make connections between them and try to, you know, kind of figure out the force from the trees in, in certain situations. Um, but he um, was found dead in a bathtub and there's a lot of shady stuff around it. And people obviously suspect that he was murdered. Um, but all that promise software 
uh, stuff also ties into the Iranian hostage crisis and the October surprise and um, backroom deals that uh, you know may have been made to um, ensure the election of Ronald Reagan. So it gets really, uh, really big, and that's what he was kind of threatening to to um, blow the lid on all of that. The promise software kind of it kind of reminds me of like. It's like a modern day version of something like what you guys are looking into with like the Dayton Witch and stuff like that. So it's like this uh, this uh, modern technology that is being um, you know fought over, and I guess really, you know, it seems like just the ease of pirating it and the profitability was just too you know too great for this like revolving these revolving door government crooks basically and uh supposedly there's something about a, a back door being built into it and it being sold to foreign governments if you're familiar with the first season of penny royal then you'll remember steven snyder aka recluse a parapolitical researcher and author who has frequently assisted us and understanding some of the stranger parts of the Penny Royal mystery. And once we uncovered Chuck Hayes and his connections to the Danny Casalero case, I contacted Stephen to discuss the many tentacles of Casalero's octopus. Well, again, I mean, it was sort of this, you know, uh, informal network of, um, you know, ex-CIA uh, officers, ex-military people who were involved in uh, a lot of illicit activities. Uh, it really sort of uh, rose to prominence, I suppose, during the 1980s and Iran-Contra. Um, you know, of course, there were uh, you know, kind of the usual suspects you see uh, pointed to in these uh, shenanigans. I mean, a big guy was Ted Shackley, I think, Uh the blonde ghost. Uh, he was a longtime CIA officer who had overseen, uh, you know, a lot of the covert operations and what have you. Uh, he was linked, you know, I mean, almost everything: the Kennedy assassination, the Cercal, um, you know, regime change all over the world, especially uh, in Latin America. I believe he was part of the uh, CIA's Cuba operations in the early '60s. Uh, he was one of the central figures that Casalaro had singled out, uh, if I remember correctly, and that kind of kind of ties into the the Enterprise, which was another one of these you know kind of informal networks that had Richard Sword, I think, and um, Thomas Kleins, and a lot of these other characters. But yeah, um, you know, some of this was partly a result of just the. You know, the state that the uh, United States intelligence services found themselves in in the 1970s, um, you know, it was a major time for investigative journalism. Uh, it was you know, really the heyday of it. Watergate was exposed. Uh, you know, there were actually some very real investigations with some major money backing them into some of the other uh, covert black projects that had been carried out, you know, throughout the Cold War in the previous decades. Uh, this was the first time that things like MK Ultra were revealed to the public and so forth. And there were at least some tentative attempts uh, to clean up the CIA uh, in the, you know, throughout the 70s, but especially when Carter assumed the presidency. Uh, so you had, you know, a lot of these uh, veteran operators, uh, you know, who were drummed out of the military and the CIA. Uh, General John Sinclair would be like another one. And um, the major issue, though, that they uh, 
kind of found is that, you know, you had these these guys who had spent a good chunk of their careers building up these vast FERC fiefdoms uh, that were sustained, you know, through arms trafficking, drug trafficking and whatnot. And, you know, you just couldn't dismantle these networks by firing these people. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff had been off the books for years. And uh, I mean, I think what, you know, Casalaro was referring to, I mean, it was uh, essentially, I think, a time when really the deep state became effectively the deep private. So much of this stuff that it at least had been tied, um, you know, at least somewhat firmly to the CIA and the military uh, went almost off the books in a lot of cases in the 1980s. And I mean, this had a lot of you know, unforeseen consequences, I think, especially with the politicalization of a lot of the um, networks and so forth. I mean, certainly um, the Reagan revolution probably benefited tremendously from a lot of the, you know, the ex-spooks, ex-military people that were drummed out under Carter. And I just think that this has been, you know, ongoing, really. <clears throat> and I mean, it's, you know, kind of cuts to the heart of, uh, uh, in many ways, you know, in what's become a national crisis in the United States um, with just unaccountable uh, security services now. You know, I mean, and a big part of that is just the fact that so many of them are totally untethered from the states. You know, I mean, a lot of it um, in the 21st century was essentially corporatized with um, private military companies and so forth. So, I mean, now, I mean, the octopus is with us to this day in the form of, you know, firms like Blackwater and so forth. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's become an integral part of U.S. policy. I mean, just look at how dependent we are on private contractors for, you know, all of the military uh, engagements that we've been in the 21st century. And, I mean, it's probably only going to uh, become an even more overt part of a... Uh, the uh, waning days of the American empire, if you will. You know, I mean, it's um, it's an incredible thing to see, I guess. Well, yeah, it was, um, it actually occurred not very far from where I live and what was in Martinsburg, West Virginia, I believe, uh, which yeah, is about only an hour from where I'm at. Um, so yeah, this isn't too far from like the DC area. Um, there were uh, what was it? There's been, uh, he is supposedly had met a source, if I remember correctly, uh, the night of his suicide. Um, and there's been a lot of speculation as to who the source was specifically and whether that played a part in what had happened. Uh, the general, or I shouldn't say the general consensus, but uh, the commonly held view was that it was probably Robert Booth Nichols. Um, who was kind of another interesting character in all of this. I mean, he was a, kind of a sometimes spook, sometimes a confidence man, uh, just generally all around sketchy character. Um, also, a uh, apparently a good friend of uh, Ted Gunderson, uh, the former FBI agent who later became a major proponent of a lot of the satanic ritual abuse narratives uh, in the 1980s uh, at the height of the satanic panic. Uh, yeah, a lot of people think Gunderson was a great guy. Um, no, no, not at all. But that's another subject. But yeah, uh, that just uh, kind of goes to show how incestuous a lot of this stuff was. But um, regardless, Casalaro had allegedly committed suicide, like so many of the uh, great investigative journalists uh, of the 90s. 
And yeah, there's obviously been uh, a lot of debate as to whether or not it was actually a suicide. Um, I believe there were additional autopsies done. There's been a lot of compelling evidence that I will have been murdered. As with a lot of this stuff, we'll probably never know. Um, but yeah, it's was certainly a tragedy. Um, and yeah, it does raise a lot of uh, interesting questions about what he had you know, really been looking at at the time of his death. I mean, the whole thing, though, was just so, you know, because then on top of that, I mean, um, there was the book, of course, on Casalaro, the octopus, the really famous one that was uh, written by uh, Ken Thomas and um, Jim Keith, the legendary Jim Keith, who, of course, uh, later died towards the end of the 90s at a bizarre incident at Burning Man. I think it was like 1999, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, the whole thing is just really weird. You know, at the time, Keith was... um, it was like, I think, an infection in his leg or something odd like that. I'm. It's been a while since I looked at that, but it was just really strange circumstances. And then on top of that, Keith um, had been, I believe, writing a lot for uh, Illuminati Press at the time. And uh, he was one of the two big authors uh, for that publishing house, along with Carrie Thornley, uh, who also died in 1999. And then... Uh, the owner of uh, Illuminati Press, Ron Bonds, I think his name was, also died. I think a car accident. So, you know, I mean, all the people just sort of associated, but this stuff just kind of started dying around like the late 90s. Uh, of course, Gary Webb, uh, you know, wasn't directly connected to any of these individuals. Um, and he was the author of Dark Alliance. And one of the I mean, obviously, there had been some great work done by Alfred McCoy uh, with the politics of heroin in Southeast Asia. But uh, Webb really, you know, gave damning accounts of the CIA's uh, complicity and, um, you know, the cocaine trafficking and the crack epidemic in the 1980s as well. So, yeah, I mean, Webb, I think, was also looking uh, at a lot of the same players that Casalaro was looking at. And certainly, I mean, Casalaro has mentioned at a few points, if I remember correctly, in Dark Alliance. Um, Gary Webb, of course, um, famously committed suicide, uh, shooting himself in the head twice. Um, <laughs> of course, you know, uh, you're familiar with Gary Webb. Uh, he <clears throat> also was, incidentally, one of the only journalists who uh, ever really write anything seriously about uh, the litany of organized crime in Kentucky. Then you got to think he's he probably was part of the bluegrass conspiracy where the cartels and shit, who knows, who knows how deep this goes through Chuck Hayes, right? And the whole Brazilian connection, but then the gemstones, think about this dude, the gemstone file. Mm -hmm. And the it's like the weird sort of loops of all of this, where it's almost self-referential, but also self-referential outside of these stories, you know? And, and, the documents that we fucking received, you know, I meant to say this earlier, they're from Escondido, California, right? Where Cardo was, where Grimstead was, where Palomar is, right? What are the odds that we would get those fucking things? And they would mention gold certificates from the Philippines and... Uh, you mentioned Stephen Snyder, you know, that we mentioned uh, the Sovereign Order of St. John, all these people. The things we're researching are in these documents, and then they tie back to Escondido, Willis Cardo, Downard, you know, and it's like, is somebody fucking with us? Like, 
or is it some type of weird, like they ended up with us because we're going to research all of this shit, you know, like, I, I don't, I don't know, you know, is it some weird information theory thing and the efficiencies of uh, channels of output, you know, I don't know. I mean, why would we get those things? They even mentioned Mitch McConnell, this Kentucky senator, you know, that everybody, you know, it's like, why did they end up from Escondido, which means hidden, you know, in our labs through this guy? I, like, and then Feral House and the fact that Feral House published the octopus, Feral House published all of Spence's stuff, all of the downer shit, you know? And then it's like, why is all of this somehow cycling together into this weird thing? And what is it, you know? <laughs> You got me, man. But it's it's it seems like you've just crossed over into this other <laughs> this other world, you know. <laughs> and so now that's all crazy, right? So here's the next level of craziness of this: the guy that's maintaining most of the websites about Chuck Hayes is named Jay Orlin Gravy. Now, I thought Jay Orlin Gravy, because of the way he's writing about uh, Chuck Hayes, is that he was here in Pulaski County as well, but he wasn't. He did visit Pulaski County, and he was here often with Charles, but Jay Orlin Gravy is the financial engineer that created the modern U.S. derivatives market. And his two obsessions in life were chaos theory and fucking Charles Hayes and bolstering Charles Hayes as a trooper. In the court case against Charles Hayes, they tried to say that Jay Orland Graby was him, that he had created that guy. But it's very obvious that Jay Orland Graby is this real dude. I mean, look his Wikipedia page up. I mean, he is the originator of the modern derivatives market, futures market, right? In America. He created all of these formulas. And guess what his other claim to fame is? He is the originator of the concept of cryptocurrency. Gravy earned his PhD in economics from Harvard University in 1981. After graduating from Harvard, Graby accepted a position at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and had a position as an assistant professor in economics. During his tenure at Wharton, he realized there was a lack of research in the emerging field of international finance and for the trading demand and financial derivatives created by this new market. To that end, he wrote International Financial Markets in 1986 which is still used as an educational and professional reference book for the trading of financial derivatives. Graby founded FX Systems Incorporated with one of his students, Farid Naib, in 1985. And once FX Systems became profitable, he resigned from Wharton to focus on developing financial and trading software. FX Systems was, according to some sources, one of the leading companies in developing technology and software for the financial derivatives market. One of his claims to fame, which has been confirmed to be partially true, is that he invented the concept of digital currency in 1995 in his article, The End of Ordinary Money, and later further developed the idea in another article, 
digital cash and the future of money. Graby died on March the 15th, 2008. In his obituary, it is stated, in financial markets and in other areas of endeavor, he considered that a false dichotomy had grown up between order and chaos, where induced fear of the horrors of total chaos is the favorite tool of those who seek power to enforce their own order on others. If the fifth column did in fact exist, I believe that Graby was a founding member with Chuck Hayes. From the available material about Hayes and Graby, I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to argue that they did not agree with the geopolitical concentration of power which promoted corruption on a vast scale. If it's true that Hayes and Graby and the fifth column were using the promise software to blackmail U.S. senators and other politicians to curb corruption in the highest echelons of the American government, then it stands to reason that they would want to change the status quo. And the quickest way to redistribute the concentration of capital is through the decentralization of the global financial markets, something that would seem to be a monumental task. There are sources online that allege Graby was also a CIA contractor like Hayes. And if that's true, it's possible that these two men worked together or met through intelligence operations, or that Graby was one of the ex-CIA contractors and programmers who joined or founded the fifth column. Whatever their connection, it is evident that Graby championed Hayes and his legacy of anti-government weirdness. Researching both men, it's easy to see the perspective that they may have developed the concept of cryptocurrency or digital cash as a means to destabilize the global financial markets and remove what they perceived as endemic corruption at the highest levels of world government. And we're seeing it now. We're seeing that same strategy of financial decentralization through Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. When I discovered that Graby was one of the originators of the concept of digital currency in 1995 and took into consideration his research and work in encrypted, decentralized digital currencies, I also wondered whether or not Graby could be Satoshi Nakamoto, who invented Bitcoin and blockchain with the release of his white paper, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, on October the 31st, 2008. Of course, the issue with this theory is that Graby died on March the 15th, 2008. But there's a suspicious detail if we look at the timing. If you read Graby's writings and research on financial derivatives, you'll notice that a 230-day contract is often a standard feature. Indeed, 230-day derivative futures contracts are a common part of his strategy. And if you look at the date that Graby died and the date that Satoshi released the white paper on blockchain, releasing Bitcoin into the world, you'll notice that it was exactly 230 days. An oddly perfect coincidence. An even stranger coincidence when you consider that Graby may have been Satoshi and constructed Bitcoin as a dead man switch, which would automatically be released to the public 
exactly 230 days after his death. It's a crazy theory, but there are others who have questioned this possibility. One such researcher is Eric Engel, and he sets forth his analysis in his book, Bitcoin Digital Finance Law. Engel did a semantic analysis of Satoshi's white paper and Graby's white paper and determined that both were written by the same person. What were all of these intelligence agents doing running around Pulaski County? Why were they here in Kentucky? And were Hayes and Graby using the fifth column to develop technologies that could create accelerationism and destabilize global financial markets? Could J. Orland Graby have been Satoshi Nakamoto? Could Hayes and Graby have invented Bitcoin in Pulaski County right here on the Penny Royal? produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging. Thank you.